Welcome to day 24 of Crikey's Election Cast. It's Wednesday the 4th of May, I'm Cam Wilson. It was the debate that we've all been waiting for. Yes, finally, we got a chance to see Josh Frydenberg and Jim Chalmers go head-to-head over why each of them has a case to be the next Treasurer of Australia. Now, normally the Treasurer showdown might not get much attention, but as politics reporter Kishore Napier-Rahman told our news editor Georgia Wilkins a bit earlier today, the fact that cost of living is shaping up to be a defining issue of the election and yesterday's rate rise raised the stakes of today's debate. We made you sit through the whole debate that's just finished. It went over. Um, Good idea. <laughs> it was a bit of a slog. I tuned in as well. This is this is actually the first debate that we've had during the campaign that's sort of taken place on free-to-air TV. Mm. Um, so obviously it was between the Treasurer, Josh, Josh Frydenberg, and Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Now, of course, we had the leaders' debate a few weeks ago, but that was on Sky News, so it had much more limited audience, and it was very dull. (laughs) Um, So take us through this debate. How did it sort of compare to that one? And, you know, were there any meaningful topics debated or was this the sort of same sort of empty rhetoric? Look, this was on free-to-air TV. It was also, you know, in the middle of the day, it was on economics. And and despite this being an election where issues around cost of living are clearly very important to both the major parties, but also to the the everyday voters, I don't think too many people would have tuned in and necessarily been super excited about this. Um, In terms of what we got from the two men who want to be delivering the next budget, you know, Jim Chalmers talked about this wasted decade that the Morrison government have had. He talked about rorts and buck passing in his opening remarks. From Josh Frydenberg, it was very much a look how much worse things could have been. Look at where the unemployment number is at. You know, it could have been up to 15% at the start of the pandemic. Uh, Look at how we're working compared to the rest of the world. And look, Labor will go crazy with tax and spend, even though they're not actually doing that in their platform. Because look at what they proposed in 2019. In terms of the two guys fighting it out, I thought that they were both, they're both quite kind of slick performers. I thought Chalmers is, is very slick. He delivered a few good zingers here and there. Mm-hmm. He got a few of, laughs, I noticed. Yeah, that. he's yeah. got the perfect tone for this kind of yeah. thing. Uh, Frydenberg, I think he's got, he has his classic kind of somber preacher voice on that he has whenever he wants <laughs> to deliver something very, very serious. He talks very slowly. Um, but, you know, I think they're probably both you know, good media performers in terms of how this is going to cut through to the electorate. Well, who's watching the NPC in the middle of the day? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, me and you, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, that's the question. Um, so I guess the, ti- the timing of having this economic debate today um, does not play well for the coalition. Obviously, we've just saw yesterday when interest rates have risen for the first time in years, that comes back off the back of record high inflation. Um, the coalition's been campaigning on its economic credentials and that's just been completely undermined. Mm. So how, mm. did the, how did Jim Chalmers use this to his, his advantage and how did Frydenberg try to deflect that? Oh, look, this is a gift for Jim Chalmers. You know, he, he, he came out and turned to this a few times that, the fact that this government wants to campaign on their management of the economy at a time when inflation is at five, can potentially hit 6%, when interest rates have just gone up for the first time in over a decade, Chalmers says that's a sign of how out of touch this government is. Um, and, and, you know, the, the response from the government, the response from Frydenberg throughout today was to say that, look, this isn't our fault. This is because of what's happening overseas. Everyone's saying the reason inflation is high is because we've got this unexpected war 
in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, all of this is uh, based on matters that are kind of outside our own hands. Obviously, you know, the, the things that are kind of within their hands are issues around wages and, and, and wages not going up um, to keep up with that kind of inflation. So, so you know, I, I think the timing of this debate is obviously awkward for the government. Economic management is such a big part of what they wanted this election to be fought on, but also because that's something that people traditionally have this sort of belief for some reason that the coalition is sort of stronger and better at management of the economy. So obviously it's awkward and uncomfortable for them, but, but you know, the way Frydenberg has sort of tried to get around that, the, the messaging that we've had from them over the last week is to say, well, it's worse out there in the rest of the world, which is, you know, not necessarily particularly inspiring and not protect, uh, necessarily that compelling when you're suddenly getting, when you're getting slugged at the Bowser um, and, and, you know, paying higher prices for everything. But they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're counting on that to kind of win enough people over, I think. So they're, yeah, relying on some of the same sort of rhetoric, I guess. Um, so who who scored the most points in the debate, do you think? Who, who won the debate? Were there any clear winners, do you think? Oh, look, I don't know, in terms of winners and losers out of this stuff, I, I thought that, you know, debates are sort of, I think, divorced from the actual policy debate. I think there's a bit of theatre to them. And given all that, I think Chalmers had a pretty good showing. You know, he delivered a line um, which, which he'd been sitting on where, uh, you know, Frydenberg was saying that we cut taxes and Chalmers' response was the Treasurer's just lied to you. They've taxed more than the last Labor government by every sort of way you measure that. He really wanted to get that line in there, I think. <laughs> um you know, there are a couple of other times Frydenberg did repeatedly go back to kind of like the spectre of Labor's 2019 um, economic platform, which was, you know, a lot more kind of bold in terms of its sort of tax and spend agenda. He wanted to kind of show that, you know, scare undecided voters um, about a, a Labor platform that's not particularly threatening. Um, Chalmers' response to that was continuing to kind of be like, look, this might come as a surprise to you, Josh, but the 2019 election is over. Um, and, and so, you know, he was able to get those kind of like throwaway lines in there in, in quite an effective manner. Um, so, look, I think to the extent that that's how we, one of the things we measure a good performance on, I think he had a pretty good performance. Certainly no real gaffes or stumbles in there for either the treasurer or the shadow treasurer, though. I think they both delivered their lines as we'd expect, have expected them to. Yeah, Chalmers definitely seemed to have the audience in his hands a bit more. Um, so now I want to take you to a story that you filed this morning. Um, you've, this is going off topic a bit, but it's it's mm. fascinating. You've basically mapped all the seats that Scott Morrison has avoided during the election campaign. <laughs> um, we've cleverly headlined the stories, ScoMo, ScoMo's no-goes. Um, so can you take us through those seats? Where Where are they and what do they all have in common? Well, what they have in common is once upon a time, these were the liberal heartland seats. These are places like Wentworth in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, North Sydney, Goldstein in Victoria. These are some of the most affluent seats in the country. They're what we call blue ribbon seats. The liberals have had them basically as, you know, real estate since Federation. The difference this election, obviously, is this sort of teal wave, the momentum around independent candidates who are tapping into broad dislike of Scott Morrison in those seats, people who are concerned about the government's perceived lack of action on climate and issues around integrity and treatment of women in politics. In all those seats, Scott Morrison, despite being the Liberal leader who won the unlosable election just three years ago, 
is considered, I think, too toxic to maybe campaign in those seats because he hasn't visited a single one. And, you know, Albanese started to have a crack at him about it today. The press back's having a crack at him about it today. It's very obvious that he is not going to any of those electorates, even though the Liberals are now worried that they could lose, you know, in a worst-case scenario, they could lose four of those seats. And as John Howard sort of pointed out, just today, if they lose even one or two of that, their chances of kind of staying in government become very, very slim. Yeah, it's, it's another case of Morrison seeming to be the most to- toxic aspect of, of the campaign, especially in some seats. Um, so what, what impact do you think this will have on the election campaign? Well, it's fascinating because, you know, watching how this coalition campaign has played out over the last three weeks, it's not really one coherent campaign because the Liberals have sort of tried to run a slightly different campaign in different parts of the country. So, you know, in these teal seats, someone like Josh Frydenberg is considered a lot more palatable and a lot more of an electoral asset. Now, he was campaigning all over Sydney in the early weeks of the campaign. Then suddenly... Problem is Josh Frydenberg is facing a really strong independent challenge of his own in the form of Monique Ryan. The Liberals are very concerned about potentially losing Kuyong. So he has to go back and campaign in Kuyong. Um, so, so, you know, Morrison can't keep, sort of stay in those seats. Frydenberg's in Kuyong. Barnaby's up in kind of coal country, trying to hold the fort in coal country and maybe get a few more seats around the Hunter or in um, the Northern Territory. So it's like all these like different campaigns going on in different parts of the country. Morrison's trying to thread the needle kind of through the through the suburbs and a few regional areas and, and sort of find that middle ground. But certainly in sort of the eastern suburbs of Sydney and the leafier parts of Melbourne, he, he, he's really obviously not an electoral asset, asset for the Liberal Party anymore. Yeah, it really seems like his minders have just sort of banned him from going there. Um, and as you mentioned, Barnaby's just even more toxic. But... Um, where where has the PM gone to the most and why do you think he's chosen to spend time there? Yeah, it's interesting. Crunching the numbers, he's done, I think, three press conferences in Parramatta, which is a Western Sydney seat that Labor has on, I think, maybe a 3.5% margin. Um, and the new Labor candidate is a guy, Andrew Charlton, is a blow-in from the eastern suburbs. Mm-hmm. The Liberals think that, you know, that kind of discontent around that you know, outside a candidate could give them a leg up. He's been to Karangamite in Victoria a couple of times, which Labor has on a very tight margin. He's also been trying to defend places like Bass in Tasmania, which is, I think, the Liberals' most marginal seat. So I think there's a sort of pattern to, there's a broader pattern to how the Liberals think that they can win this election or cling on to government in the event of the Teals picking up one or two seats or Labor picking up a few seats. They think that there is a narrow path to victory through a few sort of suburban seats. So it's places like Parramatta in New South Wales, or it's places in sort of regional areas like Karangamite and Gilmore on the South Coast. Um, and there are a few others in Melbourne that think they can pick up, like maybe McEwen or Dunkley. So it's kind of outer suburbs, regional centres where they think that, that they might be able to pick up some, some gains off labour and kind of offset anywhere else that they're falling behind and anything that they're going to lose. It's a really, really narrow path that they're trying to thread, but they hope that with that they can end up on maybe a narrow majority or you know, 75 seats cling on with the support of Bob Catter or something like that. That's the kind of calculation that Morrison's making at this point in the campaign. And, you know, you can see with the messaging, it's almost an acknowledgement of how divisive the government is for many people in the country. Morrison's own personal popularity has been eroded over the last year. He says, you know, you may not like me or my government, but hold your nose and vote for me anyway. That's not going to win people, you know, in 
parts of the country that have already abandoned the Morrison government, but he just needs enough people to stay the course, enough people to buy this argument about Labor being potentially risky in, a, in an unstable world. And he's hoping to cling on by his very fingernails. It'll probably be a bigger victory, a bigger miracle than 2019. But, you know, don't write Scott Morrison off yet. That was federal politics reporter Kishore Napier-Rahman speaking to Crikey's news editor, Georgia Wilkins, earlier today. Thank you, as always, for listening to Crikey's election cast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you have a spare moment, we'd love it if you could write a review for us on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you haven't already, you should go and check out crikey.com.au. There is a lot of great coverage on the election and on other things too. I highly recommend it. Okay, until next time.